Hello, 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 and welcome to the next episode of Schoolhouse Equity in Education, a Communities for Just Schools podcast presentation. I am Alexis J. Smith, and it is my profound pleasure to be your host and facilitator for this awesome conversation on wellness. Yes, wellness. What does wellness have to do with equity in education, you may ask? Everything. What does wellness have to do with social justice? Everything. What does wellness have to do with community organizing? Everything. So as the saying goes, if you don't know, you better ask somebody. And family, we are about to ask somebody. And not just somebody or somebodies, but some very special somebodies who are protectors and practitioners of wellness and their communities and through the work they do day in and day out. So yes, we're gonna learn today. Are you ready? Let's go. So for starters, I'd like you to meet our guests for today. I will give you their names and a few of their titles. I said a few because they are multi-talented and focused sisters, let me tell you. I'll start with Tina Marie Johnson. Tina Marie is a community organizer in Boston, Massachusetts. She currently works with the Boston Area Youth Organizing Project, which CJSF is proud to recognize as a community partner. Next, we have Rosalind Brooks. Rosalind is a health and wellness coach, community garden founder, and creator of Well Women of Color. Rosalind joins us today from her area of work in Las Vegas, Nevada. We also have with us Paula Potts. Paula is an energy medicine practitioner, author, poet, jewelry designer, and momager. We also have with us Ruth Johnwell. Ruth is a doula, a mother, and wife, a former lead organizer with Power U, also a beloved CJSF community partner, and director of Fanm Sha, which I understand is Haitian for midwife. And finally, I'm going to do my best to contain myself as I say that we have the Allison R. Brown in the studio with us today. <laughs> yes, y'all, Allison is in the building family. If you are a regular listener to the Schoolhouse Equity and Education podcast, then you know that this is Allison's baby and she has nurtured it as its host since 2016. So my being here and welcoming her as a guest and thanking her for the opportunity she has given us all to contribute to this fine work is a blessing. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you, and thank you all. Tina Marie, I started with your name, so I'd like to welcome you to please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be a part of this podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I have a lot of feelings about wellness and excited to learn from you all. And as Alexis stated, I'm an adult support slash board member with the Boston Area Youth Organizing Project. And these are young people across the city who have a deep love and passion for direct action organizing. And so I try to do my best to support them in sort of reaching their dreams and organizing their peers to impact public education in the city. And I feel very honored and proud to be able to work with them. Rosalind? Hi, my name is Ron Brooks, and I am from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I started Las Vegas' first public community garden called Vegas Community Garden 
And although I knew nothing about growing food, I did have a passion for health in the minority community. And it was from starting the garden eight years ago that has led me to teach in upwards of about 400 women of color who have now gone through my program, people who are now learning how to plant and grow their own food. And it's really been amazing. You know, having passion is wonderful, but you've also got to put some feet to the passion. And so it's been an awesome journey. Thanks for having me here. Paula, please tell us more about yourself. Greetings and blessings to all of you. I'm delighted to be here, to be a part of this conversation. I am, yes, an energy therapist. And right now, my my latest passion is as a creator of a self-empowerment, self-care workshop series called the Feel Better Challenge, which Alexis had something to do with when she was my marketing consultant. And so I'm very passionate about self-care tools and resources and building health and improving quality of life by helping people feel better. In a nutshell, I say when you feel better, you do better. And so I really appreciate the opening commentary about wellness having to do with everything. Indeed, it does. And so I'm here to rise up and give back and be a part of the wellness conversation as it relates to everything. (laughs) Ruth, if you would please uh, introduce your organization of which you are a director. I don't know if I said it correctly, but I would love for you to, to introduce yourself with that title. My name is Ruth Jean Noel, Jean Noel. Yeah, I'm glad to be part of the conversation. I am the director of Fumsage, which in Haitian Creole means midwife. I've been organizing for the last 10 years, and the concept of Fumsage came because, of course, Haitian Creole is one of the languages that I carry and hold. And so it was always familiar to me, but... um I never really associated it with the organizing work that I do, that I'm a student midwife, I'm a doula, and the work that we're doing is really catching, like when when midwives are catching babies and making sure that mamas are safe and healthy and birthing in their space the way that they want to, that as from stage, that we too as community leaders and activists and organizers, that we too are catching communities, right? Like Mm. we're catching families, we're catching communities, and we're catching them from like this centered piece of wellness, physical, spiritual, and mental wellness. Like all those three need to be intact in order for families to thrive. And if at any point any one of those are not intact and are not supported, then families in our communities aren't able to be their full, complete self. So, Allison, please. Well, hello, Alexis, and hello, everyone. And thank you for that incredible introduction. As Alexis mentioned, I'm the executive director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, and I have the wonderful privilege of supporting grassroots organizers all over the country who are working for equity in our schools, working to ensure that our schools are just and fair and safe and secure for all of our children. So ladies, our topic for today's show is health is wealth. We must protect our front lines and our reserves with an unapologetic priority on our own wellness. In today's show, we want to double down on our claim to wellness and promote wellness as a strategy toward wealth building and equity in community organizing and beyond. So as we get started, 
you all have already introduced yourselves in a, a very um, conversational way, so you don't need to, to repeat yourselves, but I would like you to, to dive in a little bit further on the purpose-driven work with a definition of wellness as you see it and what you'd like to be a core takeaway from today's conversation. Tina Marie, we can start back with you. I think for me, when I think of wellness in the context that of the work that I do as an organizer, that really means um, valuing process and relationship building over outcomes. And I think sort of having to focus on outcomes doesn't allow for folks to really spend time with themselves and create space for self-care because we're always trying to like get that, make sure we get that grit, make sure we're doing, meeting all of the outcomes of our grant. It's just always go, 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 whether it's reporting on what we're doing, trying to organize other students. I've said this in other spaces, but sort of doing organizing work is really a lifestyle. It's a, it's a mindset. And so I think of like creating intentional space for a process and building relationships as a key foundation for wellness, especially collective wellness with, in doing work with folks who sort of have value alignment and thinking about liberation, whether that be liberation for young people, liberation for people of color, liberation for black people, that feels like a very important piece around wellness. And I'm still sort of discovering what wellness means to me, but that feels like a very foundational piece. Roz? What is wellness to me? It's two things. Wellness starts with the individual. If every single person doesn't feel well, then you can't serve others from an empty tank. So number one, wellness actually starts with the person. And number two, wellness is loving yourself enough to ensure that physically, spiritually, and mentally, you feel good. At any given time of the day, of the night, of the week, of the month, at any given moment, Everyone should assess, where am I right now? How am I thinking? How am I looking? Is my stress level high? You know, is my digestion poor? Is How am I feeling? And so that's wellness. It is loving yourself enough to know that there's something wrong within your body and then doing what it takes to fix that. Because we're only here once and we have to make this life our best life and we can't have a best life if we're not well in every area of our life. Thank you. Paula? But wellness for me is really about balance and harmony in daily living. You know, having some balance as, as it relates to your diet and your exercise and your sleep and your work and your relationships. Having some balance and some harmony, some joy, some interaction with significant others that makes you happy and makes you feel good and doesn't stress you out constantly. It's about the whole person. Again, as someone else said, you know, it's about your spiritual self, your mental self, you know, your physical self. It's about a sense of connection. It's three things. It's about a sense of connection to something greater than yourself. It's about a sense of being valued and living a qualitative life, you know, that you feel you're giving to the world and the world is giving back to you. And at the end of the day, it's about self-care, about being your own best advocate in your daily life. So, Allison, you are a civil rights attorney, right? Yes. Okay. And so during the course of that very purpose-driven work, Mm -hmm. how have your experiences shaped how you define and cultivate wellness? I appreciate the question, and I haven't, honestly. And 
What I realized, and I so agree with what my sisters have said here on the podcast, what I appreciate more and more about wellness and health is that it does start with the individual. It starts inside. And I had been very much focused on the external. And I think there is personal wellness. There's also community wellness. And I had been very focused on community wellness Mm -hmm. and how well Black people are in this country Mm -hmm. and especially how well our children are in schools. And often the work then consumed my focus and took over where I really should have made room to be focusing on me Mm -hmm. and on my own wellness too. And I think wellness is multifaceted. I think there is the physical wellness, of course, but I think very much the physical aspect of wellness is, is a manifestation of the mental, the emotional, the spiritual. And when there is imbalance in those areas, then disease shows up. In the physical. Mm -hmm. And I have learned that certainly very personally and and very firsthand. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that especially for people of color, for black people, for black women, it can be very difficult to find the balance and make sure the balance is more on self Mm -hmm. than on community. Mm -hmm. But if that balance is out of whack, if we are more focused on the external than we are on ourselves, then disease can win. And the systems of oppression that have been specifically crafted to keep us unwell and to keep us disconnected from ourselves will win. And that that is not actually what we should be aspiring to. Mm -hmm. When I think about your references to separating the external and the internal focus, I I hear the conflict between that approach and, you know, am I my brother's keeper, Mm -hmm. you know, with the, the strength in numbers and all the other areas that we are. Um, encouraged to think about the community first. Mm-hmm. And I go to what we hear as we, we are, most of us are familiar with getting on a plane, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. those instructions. Yes. And that is to place that mask Absolutely. over yourself first. That's right. Because you cannot be any help to others, you know, if mm-hmm. you don't make it through the journey mm-hmm. as well. So um, I appreciate you raising that. Mm-hmm. Now, when I introduced you, I introduced you as, you know, the mama to our, our podcast. Yes. And then you followed up and added the very important factor that you are also our executive director. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about the role of philanthropy mm-hmm. as it relates to wellness, particularly in support of community organizers, which, you know, is is the mission mm-hmm. of our organization. Mm-hmm. Will you briefly tell any new listeners about CJSF's mission and talk more about the role of philanthropy? Sure, sure. We provide grants to grassroots organizers all over the country, youth-led organizers, parent and family organizers, teacher organizers all over the country who are working to ensure that the system of education, that schools that are implementing the system of education is doing so in a way that is serving all children. Disproportionately, black and brown children are being pushed out of school. They're not being provided with the same educational opportunities as white children. They are being neglected and denied and abused in the school environment. And so the organizers that we support tell that story. They really um, push that narrative to the fore. And they also are working to ensure that the system of education is far more equitable. So that is our mission. In March 2018, the New York Times published an article entitled, They Push, They Protest, and Many Activists Privately Suffer as a Result. 
This is a heartbreaking and all too familiar story told about a warrior gone too soon. Mm -hmm. How can we as a philanthropic community help defend against such loss? Yeah. You know, I think the word philanthropy is about love of people. And uh, I think too often people look to philanthropy and are looking from within philanthropy looking at it as a tool in order to repair people, in order to provide some kind of basic charitable giving, rather than truly looking to deconstruct systems that have been very carefully woven over generations Mm -hmm. and that have been carefully woven in such a way as to maintain power for a certain group of people. Mm And so what philanthropy must do is recognize that those structures, those systems have been intentionally constructed and that it is the people, the people who live in communities that have been oppressed by those systems, who actually know those systems well enough to dismantle them. And with the proper resources, the monetary resources, but also the understanding, the care, the infrastructure support that is about love of people can truly take apart those systems that are oppressing their communities, oppressing their children and their neighborhoods, and put in place new and different structures that are far more equitable, but also far more loving, far more nurturing, and actually will move every single one of us forward in ways that we have not even envisioned. Mm. I think it's important that philanthropy understand its core as, you know, supposed to be loving of people and to do that by the provision of resources and then get out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) One more question for you, Mm -hmm. Allison, that will lead us into the next. As I've heard you retell some of your experiences as a civil rights attorney. I know that that work has taken you into the deep rural South, Mm -hmm. you know, and in through a lot of inner city Mm -hmm. neighborhoods across this country as well. So as I ask this question, I want to allow your answer to kick the mic to Roz. So Mm -hmm. Roz is coming to you as I'm sure you'll have insights um, and follow up here. Allison, Mm -hmm. what were or what are your impressions of the food and grocery options, Mm -hmm. um, rural South and uh, inner cities in particular? Mm -hmm. I tell this story often about a case that I was working in Mississippi many years ago. But it was, you know, some years after McDonald's had started serving salads. Okay. That was a familiar thing, relatively familiar thing at that point in time for McDonald's to have salads. So I was working in Mississippi and and had been there for quite a bit of time. It was late in the evening, and I had not had any lunch or dinner yet, and so I was looking for something to eat, and McDonald's was the only thing open. So I walked into McDonald's, and they did not, in this particular McDonald's, Mm -hmm. in this small town in Mississippi, they did not have salads, Mm. and actually did not know that that was such a thing. Oh, my goodness. And this was in a a rural area, all-black area Mm -hmm. in Mississippi, And so my options were just the fried stuff that's on the menu at McDonald's. Otherwise, at, you know, 10 o'clock at night on a a weeknight, Mm -hmm. there was literally nothing else. There were no grocery stores open. There were no Whole Foods, Mm -hmm. no, you know, no, no options. Mm -hmm. And so I, for that 
that brief moment lived the experience of the people that lived in that community, the Black people that lived in that community. And so I, I think that much as we talk about the education system, we talk about the criminal justice system, we have to understand the system of economics, the system of the delivery of food and healthy provisions to neighborhoods and communities, and the delivery of health care to communities, and particularly communities of color, and the ways in which all of those systems were birthed of the same racial hatred and racial misunderstanding, and again, intention to maintain power within the hands of a few and maintain black and brown people as workers, as the uneducated and the ones who essentially serve the powerful. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we see today is very much a vestige of that beginning, that horde beginning. And what activism does and is doing is bringing attention to that, to the fact that there are very few options for black and brown communities and particularly low-income black communities where there aren't options to eat well, and diet is such a crucial part of, of wellness. Um, diet and, and what you consume as not just kind of keeping you going, not just fuel, but actually medicine. I think that certainly for me, it's a point of a real opportunity for, again, for philanthropy to pay attention. So Roz, would this be what we call a food desert? Yeah, that would probably be considered a food desert. But I think in terms of food desert as it's kind of defined today, which is if there's no grocery store within two-mile walking distance or three-mile walking distance, something like that, it's considered a food desert. There's just not a lot of true, true, in my opinion, food deserts around the country. I've done so much research and traveled to so many different cities and I say that because, for instance, and I think this is one of the articles that was in the email that you sent, they considered NBC, I think it was Ward 2 and Ward 3, their food desert, they only have access to seven full-service grocery stores. To me, seven full-service grocery stores is a lot. And so I don't know how that's considered a food desert because there are only seven as opposed to, I guess, they're comparing it to the more affluent area. They say they have 11. Really, you just need one grocery store to shop in. I've been shopping only at one grocery store for the past 20 years, which is about a mile from my house. And so I think it's more now than ever than any other time. It's not so much about location as it is about just culture and mindset. Okay. Um, even with the CDC... The obesity rate amongst black men and women right now is 75%. And 82% of that is black women. In terms of income level, whereas it's high income versus low income, among men, period, I'm sorry, doesn't matter about race and it doesn't matter about income level. Amongst men, there's absolutely no difference hmm. with the obesity rate, the overweight rate, with women, although black women, the more affluent they are, the more educated they are, they're less likely to be obese, but they're still 41% overweight. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's in the more affluent women of color. And so what I believe now is that we are just really in this cultural space of 
food is very addictive. We're all too busy to cook. Nobody wants to, you know, prepare meals anymore. You know, you think about it. I have a friend who is um, really overweight, but she's extremely wealthy. And she just point blank says, you know what, Ron? The more money you make, the more things you're in, the more lunches you get invited to, the more after hours, the more happy hours, the more all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's just not conducive to a healthy lifestyle. So when you think of low-income people that are living in the quote-unquote food deserts or, you know, those places that, those neighborhoods that have the majority of uh, corner stores and fast foods and all of that, yes, they're definitely unhealthy because they don't have as much access. But even if there was access, and that, this is what I experienced here in Las Vegas in my community, they still don't make the choices that they need. It's the same way across town in the Ritzy neighborhood. I had a was speaking at a conference about a month ago, and what I explained to them was that in the area of where the majority of the people in the room were, in um, upwards in three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollar homes, and all of that half a million dollar homes, there's still just as many Wendy's and McDonald's and fast foods and all of that in that area. They're not there to not make money. They're there because they're making money. And so the choices are still the same. We have 2 million people here in Las Vegas. We have four Whole Foods. Obviously, that can't quite serve 2 million people. But at any given time, I can always go into Whole Foods and there's never, ever, ever going to be a line. There's only ever going to be one or two people there. And we have, you know, more affluent here in Vegas versus less affluent. So I just really do believe that right now there has to be this shift in, we have to just change the trajectory of health within the black community, within the black family. We just have to do that, no matter how much money we make. Can I make a comment to that comment? Absolutely, Tina Marie. Mm -hmm. Please go ahead. Because I guess for me, it's just like when we talk about overweight, I'm just I'm just wondering, or like, what does that mean and who set that standard around, I know, for example, like, I used to go to the doctor and they would say, you know, your body mass index is above what it should be for your age. And I'm like, yeah, who told you that? Like who, I guess I just want to have, have an intentional conversation for my own understanding, like who's setting the standard for how we view what we, I can only speak to black people and or black women, like what, what is acceptable in terms of weight, being overweight, not, and I don't, right. I don't have the answer. I'm just wondering, I just, I just want to know, like, Who's setting the standard? Because I know people all over this globe view those things differently, right. culturally, spiritually. So I just, I just worry about sort of having a blanket, a blanket terminology around what that means. And then you raise the point about hopefuls. And I think for me specifically, in thinking about wellness, I know I stated process and relationships, but like sort of those four quadrants of physical wellness, mental wellness, spiritual wellness. Just thinking that, you know, I would love to eat healthier food, but it's, it's also more expensive for a lot of people. And so what is, what, how does that impact? Or maybe it, maybe I haven't done enough research and can get those same things at a lower discount price, but it does feel, at least here in Boston, that access to better food costs more money. And as organizers, we don't really make that much money. And so just wondering, you know, sort of where does that fit into the conversation or, or what fears or thoughts do folks have about that? In terms of the BMI that you're talking about, you go to the doctor's office and they're going to tell you you're overweight, 
according to some chart or some scale that they're measuring. And I'm not even considering that. But what I am what I am talking about is, and I've worked with about 400 women of color directly one-on-one, the average black woman now weighs 200 pounds. That's just average across the board. And so it really doesn't matter what chart you're looking at or what the doctor says. A woman knows that she does not want to be 200 pounds. And most black women don't even want to be 160 pounds. And so overweight is just defined as when they're looking in the mirror, they can see that. It doesn't even matter what the scale is. It just matters that they can see that. And so when I talk about three-quarters of black women are either overweight or obese, that's purely because they are looking in the mirror and they know that. They know that on average they're 200 pounds. There is this misconception, really, that healthier food costs more. It really doesn't. But let me tell you what makes the bill more at the checkout. You can't start to change your diet and you're buying healthier food options, but you're still buying the junk food that you're used to buying. You know, and so it's this, you're still having a lot of processed foods. You're still, you know, buying everything that you used to buy. Only now you're going to try to incorporate more fruits and vegetables in the mix. And now that's one way that makes the bill more expensive. And the other way is you can go to any, well, I won't say any because I don't know how it is on the East Coast, but the Mexican markets out here in Vegas are amazing. You're talking candy cucumbers for a dollar kind of thing. Our 99-cent store has an amazing selection of fruits and vegetables. And so it's not more expensive to eat healthy, but it does take more time, and you have to be more purposeful about, okay, what are we going to eat this week? And you've actually got to sit down and make a freaking plan, and you've got to work that plan. That's what people don't want to do. I'd like to say a little bit, even though that's not my topic, just you know, I really believe that part of the problem with all of this was diet and exercise and, and even what I'm going to talk about. I think at a level, most women in particular, I can only really speak to the black culture myself, you know, most people don't believe that diet really makes a difference. They don't believe that you need. I have actually been criticized, you know, by people I know for shopping at Whole Foods, for juicing, you know, how do you have time to do that? And, you know, why don't you eat this? Oh, don't eat that. You know, because they just don't believe it. I think we do have a cultural mindset that Roger spoke about that inhibits our willingness to even take charge of our health and do something different to change our habits. You know, we learn these things as children, you know, in terms of what we should or should not eat and it's okay to have this. Well, generations before us didn't have the information that we have now. We have the information but then we're not using it. So that's kind of the part I don't understand. You know, we're content to, for example, to relax, to take a vacation once a year, and that's it. We take one daily retreat, we breathe for five to seven days, and then we come home and go right back to do our bad habits. So we just don't have a culture that encourages self-care. We're just trying to make it through the day. We have so many others to take care of, and we just need to change Somebody, we need some influencers, <laughs> some people mm-hmm. within the community, mm-hmm. you know, within the community who have learned, you know, who are not talking from the top down so much, but from the bottom up. We need some influencers out there who have done this, who have changed their diet and changed their lives and lost weight and feel better and are making a difference. 
because they made a difference in their own lives and they can influence others who don't believe it yet. But maybe if they try it, they're influenced by somebody who does believe it, they can make a difference. I love that. And I appreciate the terminology and the reference to influencers. And I want to use that as an opportunity to bring Tina Marie back to the front of this conversation. Tina Marie is a true frontliner. She is an influencer among many and and shines brightly in the work that she does. Tina Marie, would you please tell us a little bit more about your organizer background with the lens of wellness um, and where you see that there may be intersections between social, reproductive, and restorative justice and wellness in the work of community organizing? I started organizing when I was 15. I was a sophomore in high school, really looking at young people's depression and this idea of adultism and adult power over young people. And then was felt very empowered by this idea that, you know, there were a lot of policies in place that worked against youth empowerment, worked against youth engagement, and sort of just, you know, sort of how we think about it, like, wow, it really came down to policies. And so got really inspired and, you know, continued to do the work around education policy to put more leadership and power in the hands of young people. And, you know, that looks like having young people be able to evaluate their teachers, right, because they spend the most time with them. Having young people get to have conversations about the food that they get at lunch. Having young people get to have students on the school committee that have actual voting power, things like that. When I think about wellness, I think for me, you know, there are different kinds of wellness, sort of as we're seeing in this conversation. But I really, like in terms of cultures, right, and systems, I think really having to think about this idea of capitalism as a system in which we live in that doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't value wellness. Mm -hmm. And so just really having to, for me, understand that I don't live in a system that values those things and I can't also live outside of that system. And so similar to what I said about like really just valuing outcomes and production, um, there really is no space for wellness. And I'm, thinking less about physical wellness, which is an area that I really struggle in. But to me, it's hard to think that folks can be well and oppressed at the same time, Hmm. specifically black people. And so just thinking about that sort of mental wellness, spiritual wellness, emotional wellness, right? Like that's something I struggle with every day as a black woman, as a black person in this country and can try as hard as I can, but know that unless we're, you know, I get to, I'm working towards the liberation of my people, whether I try that for myself, if my people aren't well, then I'm not well, mm-hmm. right? And so that's sort of what the work is grounded in, in terms of the organizing to get our people well, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and to really do that sort of in a way towards the ultimate wellness is healing, right? Like, we get to a place where we are healing from our trauma, very present and self-aware in our trauma, to then think about what that looks like. And I think a lot of us, we don't really have a concept. Um, I think about my love, Najma, who's now um, trying to recover from having a stroke and mm-hmm. just watching her work, 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 and being so upset and thinking about mm-hmm. sort of the strategies that face our communities and just using that as like having to go, 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 right? Mm -hmm. But then not nurturing that physical wellness. You know, the grass sort of grows where you water it and just Mm -hmm. realizing that that there are places where we weren't watering our grass. But I think it's really, you know, sort of trying to think about how do we impact 
the sort of largest system, which is capitalism, to value those things? Or how do we get to value those things while living in the context of those systems are questions that I'm, we're facing currently. I hope that answers your question. It, it does. And, and I thank you for lifting Najma's name. She remains in our thoughts and intentions for healing. And so do uh, so many others who are fighting the good fight and are potentially suffering with known and unknown impacts on their uh, physical, mental, emotional health along the way. And as a matter of fact, as to, to not just speed through this, I want to offer us all an opportunity to lift any other names that we'd like to with healing and intentions. Um, you can do so out loud or to yourself, but I would like to just take a moment for us to, to lift and, and focus our healing intentions on those who may need it. I would like to lift the name uh, Erica Garner, daughter of mm -hmm. Eric Garner, killed by police, and Tawanda Jones, sister of Tyrone West, killed by police. Despite the trauma of her brother's vicious murder at the hands of police in Baltimore in 2013, Tawanda is alive and well. She holds a faithful commitment to her fight for justice with weekly calls to action that she and her community have termed West Wednesdays. I um, am a Baltimore resident, but I don't know Tawanda. But as we say, I see her and I want to lift her name and send her and her community and their tireless fight um, some healing energy. Erica Garner, I just found out, was a mother of two. And I said was as to remind us that Erica Garner is not alive. This December, at the age of 27, Erica suffered a heart attack and transitioned out of this life to what I believe is a place of wellness where wellness reigns and pain is no longer. So I hold that peace. But in my, my, my flesh, there is little peace in the reality that only at only 27 years of age, this young adult warrior who may have just been coming into her purpose of activism and motherhood is gone and really too soon. Paula, in that space that I am especially glad that you are here with us today. Uh, you and I, have you as you mentioned, have worked together before. And in this very real moment, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask if you would walk us through a quick breathing exercise as we exhale with our healing intentions for ourselves and for others. And let me just thank you for that powerful pause that you just took to send out healing energy. Uh, that's exactly what we need to do more of, to take a pause to heal ourselves to heal the world, and to heal those who love and care about, even those we don't know. So let me first thank you for that. And the first thing I would say, you know, this is my bandwagon, this is my all-time favorite thing to talk about is breathing and breath work. And what I would offer is that we start first by just taking our attention to our natural breathing rhythm. You know, you can affect the shift in your presence to yourself just by noticing your breath. I'll take a moment then to notice your in-breath and your out-breath and just follow it without judgment, without criticism, but with reverence and gratitude that you have the opportunity to be with yourself and just notice your in-breath and your out-breath. This can also be done by placing your right hand on your lower abdomen right at the bottom of your lungs, if you will and your left hand on the top of your chest, at the top of your lungs. And just notice, again, no judgment, the movement of your in-breath and your out-breath. 
And you may be uh, stimulated to then take a nice, gentle, slow, deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth and into the nose and out through the mouth. And one more for the sake of Trinity, in through the nose and out through the mouth or out through the nose if that works best for you. And just notice. And notice if you feel a shift by just paying attention, by just observing your natural breathing rhythm. It also gives you an opportunity to become in touch with your internal mechanism, your internal wisdom, and what it's doing in any given moment. You should do this when you wake up in the morning before you go to bed at night. So on those days when crisis comes or anger arises from some injustice or some discriminatory event, you are more prepared and you have a resource and a tool to take care of yourself while you seek further help by just taking a few gentle breaths or taking a moment to notice your own breathing. And so that's what I would <laughs> say about that. You might add to that some kind of mantra. Uh, you know, I am well, I am loved, blessed to be, love lives here. You know, some positive self-talk mm-hmm. that then allows your heart and your brain and your breath to come into coherence and unity and harmony and balance. So then from there, you actually make better decisions going forward because you're more centered and more grounded. Just by noticing, observing, giving attention, awareness, and attention to your breathing. And to add into that some breathing uh, exercise, what they call conscious breathing exercise. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yes, thank you. And and you mentioned mantra, and I, I believe very much in the benefit of positive affirmations and the opposite. You know, it's traumatic effect. And yeah, with, I mean, then, mm-hmm, go ahead. Yeah, well, not to cut you off, but you know, I kind of get a little bit excited <laughs> when these ideas come to the forefront mm-hmm. because, again, as I said, we don't believe these things work. So what we need to do is encourage people to give it a go, try it and see. Because now, what's so great about the 21st century is that we have so much more information than we did several decades ago. So we have scientific proof that negative self-talk is harmful to us. Mm -hmm. We have scientific proof that positive self-talk, interacting with positive people in a positive way, actually can help us heal. I believe we all have a sacred conscience with healing. You know, that's what my whole life work is about. It's helping people to identify where they fall in their own sacred concept with healing themselves and to help be an instrument of healing in the world. So it, it makes a difference. Our thoughts make a huge difference in our well-being and our wellness. It does. And our breath mm-hmm. makes a big difference. Our breathing, how we use our breath is very, very, very critical to our health and well-being as well. We're all walking around holding our breath, and we can't breathe. You know, we're walking in fear. We lack a sense of safety and security that literally takes our breath away. And therein lies a lot of our uh, ill health and our inability to cope because we live in a state of fight or flight, you know, on the edge of our chairs. And when we're doing that, we have hyperreactive breathing, if you will. We have hyperventilation and, and tense muscles and higher levels of stress. And as a result, we don't come up with solutions <laughs> very well 
in that state. And we need to talk, we're here to talk about and lift up solutions and resolutions and how we can make a difference in equity, you know, health building as it relates to communities and schools and our young people and our elderly and everybody as far as I'm concerned. And we have to stop to take a breath. We can't just take a breath when we're on vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you get a vacation. You know, and we, if you get a vacation, that's true. You can't just take a breath. You know, my thing is you need to take a wellness break. That's what I call the Feel Better Challenge. Every day. Perhaps twice a day. I recently read an article on Maria Shriver's Power of the Pause. And I think she has, you know, traveled and, and, and talked about that for a while now. But my question is, as I say, if you get to take a vacation, is that, is the pause a, a privilege? You know, that might be a little much to unpack in today's podcast, but I want us to talk about a solution. Where can we create our own pauses, even if they are not presented to us as an option? The question I would put to everyone, which is my challenge as I work with people and talk to people, you know, every day, is I talk until I'm quote unquote, you know, blue in the face, as they say. And, uh, people look at me with a blank stare mm-hmm. because they just don't believe it. You know, they say, well, it works for you. It probably won't work for me. So I don't know how we, maybe others can contribute to how we change the mindset. Yes. There are many who think, just like they think about diet and exercise. That's for people who have time. That's for privileged people. They have time for that. They don't have any more time for it than, than we who have left have time for it. You know, some people may make more time for it. But there, there is a cultural consciousness which says, I don't have time for that. I'm not sure it works. What difference is it going to make? I'm not going to be here long enough to care. I mean, it's just so many negative mindsets that are out there that we have to penetrate and then I'm back to the point of how do we find people? And I think we need to start with the youth. I found in my work as an energy medicine practitioner, for example, that the younger people, the millennials I work with, are much more open. The body work that I do in energy medicine, which most people don't know very much about, they're much more open to the breath work that I teach them. They're much more open to, you know, a shift in their ideas about how quality of life, how quality of life. So, you know, maybe it starts with finding, you know, millennials who will then speak back to their own generation and try to bridge the gap. But I think we need actually all all, uh, all levels of our community to be able to speak to the fact that all the things out here that work, you know, I wrote a book about it for my own journey as a fibromyalgia and panic disorder and PTSD sufferer. You know, I know all about it. I've lived it. I've lived these stress-related disorders you know, depression, all of the above. And I've pretty much been able to manage really well and, and overcome in many cases. It's all because I was willing to do the work. I have a very difficult time encouraging and inspiring others to be willing to do the work. It's not that hard. So, Ruth, my question to you and then others, if you would like to, to chime in, is um, in the spirit of our African ancestors, how are the children? You know, as Whitney so eloquently reminded us, the children are our future. And I have an extreme level of respect and admiration for your role as a doula, Ruth. The blessing and the responsibility of ushering in a new life while supporting a life that is there in struggle, in labor, literally, 
along the way. It's a gift, I'm sure, to behold and, and certainly to be, um, you know, the beneficiary thereof. So how are the children? The children are free. <laughs> the children are breathing. The children are healthy. They go through their passage of trying to figure out what this world is about. They come through their, their, their pool of souls and then they choose, they choose their soul and they choose their destiny. They come through their mom or their parent and their mom pushes them out. A lot of times, um, that gets into by really high rates of C-section and they may or may not be supported. Once they're here, the institutions, including hospitals, schools, religious organizations, have a responsibility to nurture and protect those children in a lot of ways. We're missing opportunities to do that. And the children give us hope. Mm -hmm. If there's a mama who's in labor and she's pushing through, it's like there's hope that, especially that when we're talking about like black families, we're talking about like systemic oppression that has existed for hundreds of years to literally create genocide, right? Like that, like if you're not providing families with the basic needs that they have, then what is it that you're actually providing them? But these children keep coming, right? Mm -hmm. Mamas keep making decisions to, like, keep having babies, choosing to have them in their own rightful place. And now it's our responsibility to make sure that our children are nurtured, protected, and that they have everything that they need to fulfill their destiny. I'm just going to shout out Dream Defenders, too, because they have this model of, like, we've been to the future mm -hmm. and we want... I think that we can't do this work without having hope. And every child that I see, every baby that I see, every community that I see, mm -hmm. there's resiliency in that. So This is Allison, and I just want to hop in and say, you know, I think what has been shared is really instructive. And, you know, you talked, Alexis, about the power of the pause. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an important community pause that is necessary for African-American people. And that's not a distinction I make often. Mm -hmm. I'm talking specifically of the people in this country who descended from those who survived the Middle Passage mm -hmm. and have now been on this soil for generations, a soil that doesn't want them. I think that that pause is to say that we have far exceeded the intentions of the systems that were built to oppress us. Right. And I think... It's important to reflect and to really embrace the fact that when our ancestors were brought here, they were forced to create a brand new culture that really melded what they remembered, their traditions that they remembered from home, and new language, new spiritual practices, and new food. Mm -hmm. And they melded those in such a way that we have... I think as African-American people become really bound up with our cultural identity and that brand new cultural identity very much shows up in the food that we share with one another when we come together as community and family. It shows up in the way that we worship and dance and express joy mm -hmm. and express appreciation for each other. And so to take away that part of our identity, our cultural identity that we have worked very, very hard to build, despite all of the forces that are there to keep us from doing that, 
is an accomplishment. So to take that away is is something that must be done very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. You know, in in my own personal struggle recently, so I'm I'm battling cancer or I'm I am healing from cancer. Yes. And in that healing, I am learning that what the cultural identity is is actually strength. It is actually resilience. It is actually brilliance and creativity. And it shows up in our food. It shows up in the ways in which we worship and the ways in which we celebrate each other and with each other. But the core of that identity is those things, the more kind of abstract things. And so in holding one another accountable to wellness, especially for African-American people, it's important to know that history and to understand that we are thriving despite what Mm -hmm. is there to keep us from doing so. And in order for us to continue to do so, we have to make some changes in how we see and relate with one another culturally and how we define African-American culture and continue to evolve it. Mm -hmm. It can be very, very difficult because we work so very hard to create this new this new definition of who we are as a people on this new land to say that chitlins should not be part of our Uh-oh. regular diet and <laughs> collard greens with with sugar and uh, you know boiled with all of the nutrients out of them. We should think differently about how we do that. It's hard right. because of the ways in which we have defined who we are. It is very bound up in expression through food. You know, as we begin the bittersweet process of closing this conversation, that uh, you all would speak to the children or the mothers and fathers who may be listening, the aunties and uncles who may be listening and are going to pay this excellent information forward. Speak to the youth and encourage them briefly as we close to claim and protect their wellness as our future in this country. Paula, we'll start with you. Be hopeful. Open your heart to something better. Open your heart to something better. Connect with the loved ones. Connect with your purpose. Connect. I have to say something about the cultural identity thing. Connect to your wholeness as an African American. You are a whole person in spite of what media and books and things that we've been told for generations may have led us to believe. You are a whole, beautiful child of God, and you have a right to prosper, to be well, to make a difference, and to have a quality of life that brings you joy and brings joy to the world. Be hopeful, be open, and be a part of the change that we all need to see. Roz? Young men, young women, we want you to know that we love you. We support you. We appreciate every year on your head. We appreciate every single thing about you. We want you to grow and thrive. Learn from your history, but look more to the future. Look to the future. That is your God-given right. Your God-given right to have joy, to have peace, to have harmony. It's there for you. Seek it out. Do the work. Be in prayer and know that we love you. And Ruth, please. Hey, young people. Hey. So before we all came here to this, what we now call Earth, we actually had a chance to choose our destiny. 
we got a chance to choose our purpose and what it is that we're going to do here on earth. So while you're here, just know that you're supported, that there are adults who are around you that will continue to fight with you and that they too may be going through some hard times and some trauma that they may try to inflict on you, but just remember your purpose, remember your destiny, remember that times are changing and that things won't stay the way that they are now and that you are part of the change. Know that you can for sure call me, call anybody on this call, on this call now, mm-hmm. and that there's community, yeah. right? Yeah. I think the, the tool of restorative justice and circle keeping, that's the commitment that I have for young people to be able to train you all, to be able to utilize your emotional intelligence so that way you can connect with your purpose more and have a tool, right? Have a tool so that way if all else fails, that you can kind of help bind the community and your schools and your places of worship and your families everywhere, right? And I believe in you. That's why I'm doing the work I'm doing, shoot, because we got to keep going. So I'm thankful. <laughs> and we so appreciate you in that work, Ruth. Thank you, everybody. Well, as I take a, a deep breath, I really am near speechless, but since I'm the host, I can't do that, right? I've, I've got to <laughs> collect myself. And so I'll do so by repeating my gratitude to all of you on the line today. Uh, Tina Marie, Roz, Paula, Ruth, Allison, I appreciate not just your time for today's show, but for who you are. I think I will close with, with the quote that I jotted down by Maya Angelou as my affirmation to the youth. And that is, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. And I think that um, what I I want you to take from this is that it's okay to to look after yourself. It's okay to take care of you. And um, as a matter of fact, it's a necessity. So we encourage you to do it. And when you need help, you reach out. We've got folks on the line right now. There'll be contact information somewhere connected to this podcast. Uh, Reach a hand and a hand will reach back to you. And on that note, ladies, I want to say thank you again. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Delighted. Thank you. Thank you all. God bless. Family, I'd like to thank you for listening today. My name, again, is Alexis Smith, and it has been my honor to be your host for this episode of Schoolhouse Equity in Education, a Communities for Just Schools podcast presentation. If you would like more information on the Communities for Just Schools Fund, please feel free to visit our website at cjsfund.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at CJS Fund, on Twitter at Just Schools, and on Instagram at Just Schools Fun. Thank you for listening and make sure you stay connected and tune in for next month's episode of Schoolhouse Equity and Education.